0: Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome to the podcast, and thanks very much for joining me. I just finished talking with Li Song Liu about his new book, Chinese Student Migration and Selective Citizenship, Mobility, Community, and Identity Between China and the United States. This came out in 2016 with Rutledge Press. And I'm particularly excited to share this with you in part because this is a book that gives historical grounding and a kind of voice to animating some really important conversations that are happening in and around the academy right now. And though the book focuses on the relationship between China, Chinese student migration, and the U.S., it issues at the points that it's making, the arguments in the cases really speak much more broadly, I think, to uh, phenomena and migration and universities beyond the U.S., um, at least to a more broadly North American context, if not well beyond. So it's a rather extensive conversation, and I'll keep this relatively brief so that you can get right to it. But I'll just say um, one of the really important kinds of work that the book does, um, just to expand on what I've just said, Is to take a a deeply transnational approach to understanding not just the legislation around the history of the sort of major kind of macro historical phenomena of migration and student migration specifically from China um, to the US, specifically again, but it uses these very sensitive case studies to speak to Larger issues of how we understand citizenship, um, how we might use our stories about citizenship to give more agency too and to acknowledge the the agency and the the active choices made by immigrants themselves it also speaks really importantly i think to some uh, very important contemporary debates around north american universities and international students and especially issues around the treatment of international students as a source of revenue and all the implications that come from rising numbers of international student recruitment to North American universities and the responsibilities um, that universities are or are not um, doing the most to embrace in terms of caring for um, nurturing and really um, setting up a situation for uh, international students so that they can best flourish. In North American universities. So there's a lot of really important issues around the particular case that Li Song is studying, and um, I hope that you enjoy as much as I did. Thank you as ever for listening to the channel and for your support, and here we go. I'm here today to talk with Lee Li Song Liu about his new book, Chinese Student Migration and Selective Citizenship. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Li Song, and thank you so much both for making time to talk with me today and for writing a book and giving us a case study about an issue that's of really primary importance to many of us right now. So welcome to the channel and thanks very much for being here.
1: Thank you very much, Connor, and thanks for your interest in this project, and it's really an honor to be included in this project.
0: Well, thank you so much. So, Li Song, let's start out um, as, at the beginning, as is kind of traditional for the channel, and talk a little bit about how you came to the field. So, what brought you specifically to modern history, to the modern history of China, and to a modern history of China that takes such a deeply transnational
1: approach? Right. Uh, I started uh, studying Chinese history back in China, and uh, I studied modern Chinese history and U.S.-China relations. (laughs) Then I came to the United States in 2001 for my Ph.D. at the University of Minnesota, where I had the fortune to study with the leading immigration historians. And uh, because immigration is... Uh, fundamentally a transnational and interdisciplinary project. So I got to uh, study Chinese history from this particular perspective. And my book is about student migration. I think that's based on my long-time interest in The educational exchanges between China and the United States Mm -hmm. and um, also the political history, but it's also based on my exposure to the social and cultural history that I was um, immersed in during my graduate school training in Minnesota. So I I would say my book is a political and cultural history of China, of modern China, particularly in the last three decades. And I tried to Collect Chinese history with American history, particularly in the Asian-American history, because that's uh, what I was trained for, uh, the Asian-American communities in the Chinese-American history post-1965 Chinese America in the United States. Um, so that's how I started this project, the Chinese student migration to the U.S. after China started its, re- its reform in 1978.
0: Great. Thank you so much. So you've already um, very generously told us a little bit about what brought you to this particular project in the context of the larger um, entree into the field that you work in. So let's talk a little bit about what produced this as a book Object. So this project actually started out, as you just mentioned, as a dissertation project. So right. let's talk about that transformation. In the transition from dissertation to book, were there any important ways that the way you were shaping the project, the way you were conceptualizing the project, or really anything important to you about the project importantly changed from one stage to the other?
1: That's right. I think... Uh... I think it uh, might have been the same for many, many people. The process has been quite interesting, exciting, but also painful. Yeah. <laughs> right? Transforming the dissertation into a book. And particularly in my dissertation, uh, in the process, I kind of changed half of the dissertation in a, uh, when I revised it into the book. Uh, I added uh, two new chapters. One was about the educational program, the internationalization of education <laughs> and the the impact of international education on China and on the American higher education. So that's totally a new chapter and it's based on the suggestion I got during my defense. <laughs> and that's wow. that's a very important moment. And uh luckily my dissertation committee members they were very generous and they told me that there might be something missing in my dissertation, which would be the educational institutions in both china and the u s so I added this new totally new chapter into the book uh I also kind of uh, wrote a new chapter the first chapter um on the four waves of student migration, which I think is a natural process because after finishing the dissertation and after teaching uh, for several years, after continuing the research on the subject, I started to think about the Different uh, the the periodization of student migration, which I I think I did mm-hmm. a little bit in my dissertation, but not so comprehensive, comprehensively and and so clearly. So in this first chapter, I historicize the four waves of Chinese student migration to the United States, uh, together with the context of U.S.-China relations and also the changes both in China and in the United States. So those new those two chapters are are quite new. And then I kept the other chapters, but the last chapter the selective citizenship. That's that's a, a lot of interesting story, I think, mm-hmm. concerning the transformation of the dissertation into the book. In my dissertation, I had the general idea that I would like to talk about this Transnational citizenship. So, transnational citizenship was the term I used in my dissertation, and you can see it's pretty general. Uh, it's it, it's vague too, even though I use that concept to challenge the conventional framework of immigration studies and the assimilation model. Um, but I think by just using transnational citizenship, that term. There's something more, uh deeper in, in and more com- com- complex, com- complex mm-hmm. in, in for us to understand what this transnational citizenship really means. So, I guess maybe in the third, second or third year of my uh, teaching here in Pennsylvania, uh I was revising uh, that in the last chapter of my dissertation that chapter on transnational citizenship and the return migration into a journal article, which was published in 2012. uh, Then I was thinking about this, maybe I should uh, rethink what this transnational citizenship meant. Um, And in the end, I came up with the selective citizenship, which finally becomes uh, a key theme in my whole book, and also in the part of the title of the book, um, which I think helps us to understand that it's not just a transnational, but it's 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 about people's mobility across national boundaries, but also about the limitations, about their choices, about how they are very uh, consciously uh, and skillfully. Adapted to immigration policies, and nationality laws, and to find their own identity and find their own uh, membership. So that's that's one interesting story in the process of transforming the dissertation into the book. I guess um, that's that that basically started the whole new arguments of the book. Uh, but of course, um, besides this concept about citizenship, then I rethought the impacts of the rise of china and even the surge of the chinese students in the united states i graduated in 2009 so at that time uh in fact at that time i was most interested in the return migration part <laughs> that that's, that's why i i uh revised the chapter into a journal article but In these recent years, as we all know, the number of Chinese students really skyrocketed even more. And also the concept of the Chinese dream, right, which was uh, raised and popularized, particularly after 2012, um, officially uh, endorsed by the Chinese government. But also it led to uh, public and intellectual academic discussions, both in China and in the U.S. So that th- that concept, that term, "Chinese Dream," then led me to rethink the book, the project. Uh, and so in the end, I think my book has been trying to prob- problematize both the Chinese dream and the American dream. And then in that process, I collected. All these different chapters, make making them more coherently. Uh, for example, the first chapter I talked about the different waves, and then the transformation of the American dream, and then what the Chinese dream meant for this most recent wave of Chinese student migration, and then uh, the second chapter, the educational reforms. It's also about uh, the 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 how chinese and american educators they understood either the chinese dream or the american dream and the national identities and the the the, the role of the role of international education in both societies and and then the other chapters about immigration policies migrant communities and then uh, selective citizenship so I think it, it it's a great process. I really enjoyed it, even though, <laughs> as you know, after the publication of the book, I thought, oh my goodness that's that's a really long process. but it's a very interesting one. I think it's it's the process uh, in which I gradually uh realized what's the real theme of the book, along with the development in in the world, in in China and in the U.S. and what concerns us most. And then I in I incorporated those contemporary concerns into my revised project.
0: That's great, thank you. And I think one of the things. Um, and so we're going to move. To this issue of the American dream and the Chinese dream in a moment. But first, I'll just mention something and then kind of set a little bit of context. And the thing I'd just like to um, highlight, um, among the many really interesting things that you just said about the process, is the importance at that stage of the defense of the dissertation, right, for graduate That's students right. who have the opportunity to do that, and not all not all PhD programs actually do have a defense, but for those right. that do, um, both for colleagues of ours who are listening who are um, involved in the process of helping conduct the defense, right, for professors, for chairs of mm-hmm. committees, but also for graduate students who may be looking ahead to that process. It's so important. It can be so helpful and transformative for a project to integrate right. into that conversation, right, some attention to and some attentiveness to um, what could help transform the dissertation into a book manuscript um so because not all dissertation defense processes explicitly address that Mm -hmm. um, i think Mm. you're you're really um helping to make an argument for the importance of doing that because it really can help a writer transform a project and it's really a rare opportunity to get a bunch of people in the room to help do that Mm-hmm. But so let's get right into it. So what, I, what I'll do is just say a few things just to kind of set the stage and then we'll dive right into the first chapter. So, Mm -hmm. as um, And I'll just kind of summarize some of the stuff that's happening in the the introduction for listeners who haven't had a chance yet to see the book and read it. So the introduction opens at the very beginning um, by telling us or reminding us that since the inception of Open Door and reform policies in 1978 in China, more than three million Chinese students have been sent abroad and most frequently to the U.S. Now, the book is going to look at the historical contexts in which that happened in order to how we think about both the history and contemporary practice, and perhaps to look into the future. Now, it it analyzes the impact of China's economic, political, and educational reforms. It looks at the importance of changing relations between the U.S. and China, and it considers the transformations in Chinese-American communities, American immigration law, and race relations that came with the transformation of students to migrants with a relatively high, relatively speaking, right, um, and sometimes mm. absolutely speaking, professional <laughs> right. and socioeconomic status. It also right. looks at migrants' own, um, in the words of the book here, transnational networks, cultural hybridity, and interpretations of citizenship. The book is going to argue, and we're going to get to this in a moment, that student migration, again, in the words of the book, embodies the persistent but transformed American dream in China. So let's get to that dream. And we get there um, kind of deeply uh, and in a a very focused way in chapter one. Chapter one, and again, I'll just kind of set the stage here and then open it up to you. Mm -hmm. Chapter one offers a, a brief but very focused and very, very helpful history of Chinese students studying abroad, especially studying abroad in the U S it divides student migrations post 1978 in the way that you just described just a few moments ago into four major waves and looks at the changing meanings of the American dream in each of these waves. So the first wave was 1978 to the mid 1980s. The second wave was the mid 1980s to the early 1990s. And in the second wave, you talk about the impact of Tiananmen square, right? And the Tiananmen square incident. The third wave is the mid-1990s to early 2000s, and the fourth wave is the early 2000s to the present. And in this fourth wave, you talk about the significance of September 11th, um, the September 11th incident, and also, um, and this is really important, I think, to a lot of listeners right now, you talk about the significance of um, the issue of air pollution um, in helping to shape this, and that's, a, I think, a really interesting way that we right. study right dovetails with um, environmental histories and those kinds of concerns. Mm -hmm. Now, um, there are several arguments that this chapter is making, but I want to go right to um, an issue that you've already brought up and ask you to expand a little bit more on it. Mm -hmm. So in addition to showing that the myth of the American dream has been constructed differently in each of these waves. You talk about the ways that the current surge of student and professional migration reveals, this is in in the words of the book, the dilemma of the Chinese dream. An increasingly wealthy and powerful China ironically can't retain its own citizens or convince migrants to reclaim it as their home. So can you maybe open up um, what you see as the most important aspects for you of this chapter by taking us into um, what you see as most important about this Chinese dream and the work that it's doing here?
1: Right. Um, that's a great summary. Thank you, Carla. Oh,
0: thank uh, you for making it so right. clear. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, I think a few things. One is the h- historical root of the American dream, which I have tried to highlight in the chapter and and it's particularly interesting, uh because I, as you know, when we wrote this kind of book manuscript, we usually sent them to Carnegger's friends for critics, for comments, <laughs> and uh, a few times I got the feedback that um 30 years, the four waves uh it, may, it might be a challenge right to to historicize contemporary history. So um, hopefully I have my my historicization of this Chinese student migration since nineteen the late 1970s is effective. But I think the four different waves, the continuing waves, but also very distinctive waves, I think they prove that how much China has changed even in just uh, 30, 40 years. Um, and also... The American Dream, as I put in the book, has been reinvented in a sense that um, following a historical pattern, the United States has always been viewed in two ways which complement each other, constitute each other. One is that the United States is a model right it's admirable uh and but the other image is is resentful because it is it, 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 it exploited uh, the Chinese people in history as one of the imperialist powers. And at the present, it has been viewed as uh, curtailing China's uh, uh, rise. So I, I try to analyze, contextualize this American dream in the context of Chinese student migration to see how students mm-hmm. as a particular group, understood this American dream and this American dream. Then my chapter argues is not really about the the United States. It's really about what happened in China and about the concerns of the students themselves about their own identity and their own perception, their own aspirations. So for example, the first wave from the 1970s to the early 1980s is a wonderful year for the United States and China to establish, to normalize their diplomatic relationships. So students and at that time, many state sponsors scholars, they rediscovered the United States and along with that very romanticized image of the United States. Uh, then the second wave was marked by the political unrest in the late 1980s, as you mentioned, including the Tiananmen Square incident, when students advocated American democracy, and they later they sought refugee and settlement in the U.S. And then the third wave, I think things changed in China, right? Um, China, after the 1992, Deng Xiaoping toured southern China and kind of pushed forward China's economic reform. And China experienced this long-term uh, economic development and the people also got a better, more opportunities to go abroad and to understand the United States. So the American dream was upheld, but it was less generalized or romanticized as in the past two waves. Uh, and it was also complicated by the growing national pride among the Chinese, including the students. And then the last wave, uh, with a very interesting pattern, uh, as I mentioned earlier, with in the skyrocketing number of students, including younger students now, who had more financial resources based on China's economic development. And many of them, in fact, came abroad uh, with the intention to, to be in the bridgehead of migration for the family for the family of the new rich. And also um there was tremendous anxiety in the Chinese public about the quantity the quality of life. <laughs> Uh, like air pollution, as you mentioned earlier, and the food safety and the public morality. So this this most recent wave, I think it's very interesting, it's still unfolding, and we don't know uh, how public sentiments may change. <laughs> uh, so, but I think it shows that, again, uh, the perception of the United States among the Chinese, particularly the Chinese students, are defined not by what happened in the United States, But what happened in China? Um, And in that sense, the rise of China has not really uh, negated the deeply rooted American dream.
0: Great. Now, as we, there's a lot more um, that we could talk about in the context of chapter one, but there are lots right. of other chapters. So um, right. as we move to chapter two, I would just want to uh, mark for listeners that there's a lot of really wonderful discussion in chapter mm-hmm. one um, that they'll find in the book of all of these individual stages and the factors that you've talked about at much mm-hmm. more length. But in chapter two, we move to a really interesting study of the study abroad industry in China. This is really, really fascinating. Now, this is a powerful force, as you show in this chapter, that shapes both Chinese student migration and also related notions of this American dream we've been talking about. Now, the mm-hmm. initial part of the chapter focuses on an analysis of um, an uh, organization called the New Oriental School. Now, uh, for listeners who are not familiar with this um, industry in China, right, can you very briefly um to explain what is this New Oriental School and in what ways for you does what's happening here sort of encapsulate um, the most important things that you would hope we would get out of this chapter?
1: Right. Yeah, and the New Oriental School is a very interesting case. Um, I guess if you ask any Chinese students, <laughs> um, American campuses, I would say most of them know about this school. Um, it's the Possibly the oldest and the largest English language test and a study abroad preparation service in China. I think it was founded in the early 1990s as a family-run business by Yu Minghong, and then it, it, it expanded uh, in the next decades. And I started my chapter with in, with, in fact, a film based on this New rental school. Its success, 中国和火人, which was released just a few years ago. uh when I was when I visited China a few years ago, visiting my family, and I watched this film back in China. So I could really sense how popular and successful that film was. Uh, and the film d- depicted a uh, similar company. Of course, based on this new New Oriental school case, uh, the founders very young, very ambitious. and They had kind of romanticized American dream. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, possibly in the 1980s. So the founders belong to the generation who were tremendous, tremendously affected by the Enlightenment movement, the democratic movement in China in the late in uh Late 1970s and early 1980s, up to the late 1980s. Um, so, they admired the West, and they, because they really wanted to modernize China at that particular moment, so they even advocated kind of for Westernization. And so, this, this, the, the founders of the New Oriental School, I placed them in, in this historical context. Uh, and, but at the same time, I argue that uh, their, the success of the school was fundamentally based on this myth of the American dream mm-hmm. uh, and the American dream they advocated. Um, but at the same time, the interesting thing is they also needed to face the challenge of the rising nationalism in China. Uh, for example, in uh, 1999, the NATO-led bombing of the Chinese embassy in Yugoslavia, and in that at that moment there were nationwide protests against NATO, against the United States, and then the new Oriental School because it it was the largest uh, training service and in, encouraging students to go abroad. Particularly in the United States, so it was targeted, and it had to find ways to defend itself. So in that context, it uh, sided, or were, I think, sided with the official standpoint that. Uh, Ways should still remember the history of China's national humiliation. So all that national sentiment, nationalist sentiments in, at that moment. So and the second chapter really uh, describes this interesting tension between this deeply rooted American dream and then the changing public mood complicated by the changing U.S.-China relations on the diplomatic crisis like that. Um I guess the rest of the chapter uh talks about the response of Chinese educators towards international education particularly uh the joint programs of increasingly popular and the increasing trend of Chinese students studying abroad and I pointed out that The Chinese educators' attitude has been quite ambiguous. On the one hand, they hope that there can be more market-based, well, maybe not market-based, but more freedom for Chinese educational institutions to develop, uh, to be free from state intervention or state domination but on the other hand they are also very sensitive about this uh, educational sovereignty or cultural identity of china and so they uh, argue that there might be some there might be a certain need to retain the role of the chinese state in battling against the power of excessive capitalism and symbolized by the market of international education, Um, also to battle against Western influence. So that's something very interesting, I guess, uh, we can see in the, along with the increasing international education in China and this increasing trend of studying abroad. Uh, Then the second half of the chapter deals with the American side uh, right. including right including both the 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 efforts of American government as well as higher education institutions in recruiting international students I guess this might be most uh, well known <laughs> that's the known as when uh, uh, in in academia, we know uh, many American universities, colleges, they they have been trying hard to uh, send people abroad, uh, admissions officer abroad, or agencies, agents, agencies abroad to recruit international students, particularly Chinese students. Right. Because, of the, yeah, because of the fiscal pressure after the economic recession in 2007.
0: We have that in uh, Canadian universities as well, actually. I think that's, that's a, right. yeah, it's a broadly North American. Um, that's right. That. And also
1: European universities, I guess, the yeah. same. Because I attended uh, International Education Fair in China a few years ago, and I saw all their exhibition halls uh, sponsored, in, in fact, by uh, Malaysian government embassy in China and also British embassy in China. So there has been this very uh, intense competition among nations to recruit international students, of course, for its, for its financial gains. Mm-hmm. But in a, in a U.S. context, historically, we know um, educating Chinese students has been a very important Dimension of American policy towards China. So, my the, this chapter points out these dual dimensions, both for American government and high education institutions to recruit Chinese students, both for financial gains and for its cultural and diplomatic missions. That's um, right.
0: Oh, sorry. So, and also, just to kind of mention for listeners, and then we can um, maybe move to the next chapter, which looks at mm-hmm. um, sort of right. imi- legislation of immigration, which is also a really important part of this. Another really important focus of Chapter 2 for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to read it um, right. is also the increasing uh, phenomenon of American branch campuses um, that's right. abroad. And that's another... So these two issues, right, are uh, these the increasing... Um, uh, efforts to encourage international students and Chinese international students in particular to study at American universities um, to a large extent because of the financial gains that the universities are making, you know, as a result, and also the phenomenon of branch campuses. I think That's any but right. b- any of us, right? Like anyone listening to this, and any potential or actual readers who have a personal involvement in academia right now, who have any family or friends or, or colleagues who are working in academia, who are themselves studying in academia will recognize these as very, very hotly debated um, active issues animating a lot of conversation um, in and around the university right now in a lot of different ways and certainly at UBC, um, my home institution, um, there's a Mm -hmm. lot of conversation about this, about the consequences, about the kind of relative fairness of Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. uh, the different tuition rates right, Right. and rising tuition rates for international students and the kind of equity issues that that and so there's a lot of really interesting conversations around the really important work that this chapter does
1: that's right and and then sorry uh, because yes. I do mm-hmm. right uh, because you you, you you mentioned this very important part and I do hope I can um, uh, mention kind of the contemporary concern based on this chapter because with this increasing number of international students I guess they have been uh, debates, also uh, controversial images, or even uh, stereotypes against international students too. So, right. So, I I surveyed in the critical higher education report, uh, um, the opinion articles about international students. So there has been a trend uh, in the nineteen in the two in the first decade of two thousands after the uh, terrorist attacks. So in the first years, uh, American educators were worried about the decreasing number of international students, right? But then, in mid two thousands, with the increasing number of the, the 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 pickup of the number of international students, then the major concern started to become the anxiety, uh what the, st- the, the, the 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 impacts on American academic integrity or academic freedom or American venues. So I would like to uh, highlight here. Uh, uh, because it's one of the kind of civic missions of the book <laughs> that we need to we need to really respect these international students, not just treating them as as uh, financial resources, but also as individuals, as equals. There and also, uh, I think American educators are faced with similar to their counterparts in China who who have the dilemma of balancing the role of the state, right? In either securing more freedom from the state for educational reform, but also retaining the role of the state in the battle against capitalism and Western influence. I think for American educators, they are faced with the difficult tasks of challenging, again, the deeply rooted American exceptionalism. Because when they talk about uh, American academic integrity, American academic freedom, when they stereotype international students, they tended to again glorify what the American American dream American exceptionalism as different as and the need to upgrade international students to fit our system. I, I guess that's one point I really I'm not comfortable with, and I really hope that you know, our World, that academia can can think about the the best the best best ways to treat and respect and incorporate international students. And also, I think American educators or any educators in any nation, uh, possibly more in the American context, I think they face the challenge of decentering the American state in its encompassing power in directing foreign relations and international exchanges. Again, I guess that's something very deeply rooted in uh, what's the mission of educating foreign students in the United States, right? Mm-hmm.
0: Absolutely. Thank you so much for articulating that. And I think it's, um, it's really, really important, and it really is a great example of the very, very important way that the book is speaking to and can help inform some extraordinarily important conversations we're having in and around universities now, including, you know, uh, given this... Increasing um, and vibrant push to encourage international student enrollment right. at our universities. How, what responsibilities do we have um, as faculty and as universities to care, you know, to, in our duties of care for international students and to make sure that we're giving our international students the resources to, to do well and to flourish at our mm-hmm. universities, mm-hmm. which is not, doesn't always feel like it's the case.
1: It's not easy. Yeah. No. <laughs> um,
0: yeah. So thank you for that. Um, and I hope that we'll, we can continue these conversations.
1: Mm-hmm. Right.
0: So there's, as we move to the next chapter, um, strictly because of limitations of time, we won't have time to get into too much detail. But I just want to mention for listeners, this is a really important chapter. Um, chapter three looks at the changing immigration status of student immigrants. It. Takes us into the nature and the impacts of two major legislative measures that shaped these changes. The first one Mm -hmm. um, centers on the 1992. Chinese Student Protection Act, um, and you talk about the ways in which this can be understood largely as a kind of political campaign, right, that sort of idealizing the U.S. at the end of the Cold War. And you also take us into the implications and really the lived experiences of individuals who are dealing with these changes, which is really, really important. The creation of the H-1B specialty worker visa in, 19, in 1990 and its expansion thereafter. And student migrants had some really challenging and painful experiences with these and related procedures and policies. And this chapter really takes us into those and helps us hear some of the voices coming out of that um, so that we can understand again the impact of these legislative changes on the larger um, narrative arc of the book, but also on the individuals that the book is helping us to hear um, and understand uh, a right. more. Mm-hmm. So, um, so well. I'll kind of leave that there. But is there anything um, briefly before we move on that you feel is is crucial for us to understand about that chapter that you just want to highlight briefly for us?
1: Mm-hmm. uh I would make it also uh, briefly. I know we we uh, we have that time concern, okay. but that's okay. Uh, right. Uh, I th- I think it's um well when I wrote this chapter when I revised the chapter uh I kept up with the immigration debates. And that's the beauty of immigration studies, I guess, even as a historian, because it's constantly going on and we constantly got all the feedback, all the comments, very complicated comments from the public around us. So this chapter talks about, uh, as you said, the immigration policies, especially in H-1B debate, uh, which is still ongoing. And uh, also, the concern among migrants themselves about uh, the need to trans- reform American immigration policies, especially the long wait of uh, the long wait for certain national groups such as the Chinese, the Indians, Mexicans, and the Filipinos. Um, so, I I think one central argument in the chapter is that I think the the long wait is not just a um, just a in, just a a contemporary concern because these national groups have been marginalized, discriminated, or even excluded in the past historically. So I try to make this kind of historical parallel to to say that we need to think about contemporary immigration policies. The 1965 immig- immigration reform uh, it might not be as we regularly uh, understand as so uh, revolutionizing the immigration regime. It have it has retained certain discriminatory um, characteristics, patterns, especially uh, concerning the, the the difficulties for certain national groups to adjust their status.
0: Great, thank you so much. So as we move from this to Chapter 4, we move to a chapter that looks at the ways that student migrants build communities in local American society. And the chapter, um, it takes the Twin Cities in Minnesota as a case study. Now, this actually does at least a couple of different kinds of really, really interesting work, this kind of, uh, or this focus on this particular locality. One of the kinds of work that it does, and that you mentioned um, here in the chapter is that it allows the analysis to move beyond what has otherwise been a very dominant narrative um, that tends to focus on the coasts and on California right. in particular, as you mentioned here in Chinese and Asian American studies. So it, it relocates um, this conversation in an area that's not on the coasts, And thus it brings a fresh perspective in that way. Mm-hmm. But you mm-hmm. also mention here in the course of your analysis, that part of your analysis comes from your own experience in Minnesota, right. right, including as you, uh, in the words of the book, serving as the director of a communi- of community involvement at the Chinese Student Association during the graduate study um, that you undertook that produced this study at the University of Minnesota. So because mm-hmm. this, is, this is a really interesting um, kind of moment in the study. So could you talk a little bit about how that experience kind of shaped um, your understanding of what's going on here in the chapter and also shaped um, your uh, sense of what's uh, perhaps most important for us as listeners and readers to get out of this chapter—like, what do you? What's really important for you, based on that experience, for us to take away?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, uh, the service as the director of community engagement for the Chinese Student Associ- Association has been one of my best memories <laughs> during my graduate school training in Minnesota. And with NetAdvantage, I, I could uh, interact with different community organizations and I got tremendous support from community leaders and particularly Mr. Wei Lu, who is a wonderful, a prominent city planner and also, wonderful community leader, both in Minnesota and in the nation. Um, so, so, I I think this chapter um, describes uh, Midwestern Chinese community, uh, both in the larger context of the national transfer- the, the national patterns of changing Asian American communities after 1965, uh, for example, the diversity, growing diversity of immigrants uh, for the Chinese migrants. um, Now they are from different regions with different dialects and also different socioeconomic status, different residential patterns and different identities, political, cultural and religious affiliations. So that follows the national pattern uh, but on the other hand, I think the Midwestern con- context helps us to understand uh, the different racial and the political landscape. Uh, because in Minnesota, the demographic uh, picture is really different from the demographic picture in California or in New York, where Chinese population uh, has been a major, uh, very important, a large part of the state the population of the state, but in Minnesota uh, it's only 0.5% of the state population, uh, very small, and also the Chinese population is not the largest among the Asian American right. communities. So that, that that makes it a little bit interesting to see how the Chinese community um, identifies itself, positions itself in this interesting Midwestern context. Yeah. Um, uh I, I i think the chapter also talks about uh, a very important uh, one important theme which measures the larger theme of the book that is the transnational networks in fact uh help migrants to reflect on their uh Local roots and even help them deepen their local roots. So, uh, I guess that's a coherent, coherent theme in this book. That when we talk about transnationalism, transnational networks, we may not, we we may better not to idealize that because there will be costs for transnational linkages. No tremendous benefits, of course, right? And we need to understand the transnational networks and identities to challenge the deeply-trenched nation-state-based analytical framework in our studies of migration or any other subjects. But at the same time, we also need to understand the migrants' own concerns during the transnational process. Uh, so for example, some migrants um, I interviewed may travel to China a lot in these past years, and but they... I, I, my last chapter will talk about the circular migration rather than permanent return mm-hmm. but in but but now for now the migrant I just mentioned he he decided that he would not go back to China to settle down that mean that, that means that he decided to remain in the United States uh, American citizen uh, a major reason was the air pollution again mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so he he said he would not uh, he 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 couldn't really live out there um um and, all, and, and also the the, change, the social relationships i guess he has been used to the lifestyle in the united states that he might not possibly feel comfortable back in china but i think that's natural for any immigrant after a long time of um uh, re- residents abroad. So uh, so that's, that's the last part of my chapter, emphasizing this interesting dynamic between transnational linkages and local route, because many migrants also feel like they traveled back and forth constantly, and that might have caused the lack of local engagement, which would be a very, very important part for their local identity, local rights. Um I, I I guess that might this might be applicable to to other immigrant groups too. so that's one major purpose of this chapter. Uh, I hope to kind of uh, clarify the relationship between transnational and the local identities.
0: Thank you so much. And um, if we had another hour, there's a whole lot more that we could talk about, right, just in this chapter. And so I'll just um, mark this for listeners so that um, they know that this is there and they can go back to this when they have the book. Um, The chapter also, in addition to doing all the kinds of work um, that you just mentioned, it's also showing the ways in which, um, with increasing numbers of student migrants becoming professionals, Mm -hmm. community dynamics have really changed. And it looks at some of the most important ways this has happened. including um, growing diversity and class bifurcation, the development Mm -hmm. of heritage schools, and you talk about Chinese language schools. You talk about, there's just fascinating um, description of uh, changes in community newspapers, um, which is really Mm -hmm. interesting. It covers faith-based organizations like churches. (laughs) It looks at family and gender relations um, in the lives and the family lives of um, students and professional migrants. And it also talks important Um, and again, I'll mark this, and then we'll move on um, about right. the important transition from considering one's identity as Chinese to mm-hmm. considering one's identity in terms of Asian American. And you talk about your own experiences with this kind of transition as well. And so it's a really fascinating chapter for all kinds of reasons. And we could totally just spend like <laughs> an hour just talking right. about this
1: chapter. So listen. thank you very much. Oh, yeah, no, of course. And here I, I do want to because you mentioned that Chinese heritage, heritage and language schools. I do want to highlight a little bit because I think it's also a very contemporary issue. And I hope we, uh, as educators and uh, as uh, citizens, I hope we can um, um, kind of uh, address and improve that. That is the the importance of a foreign language study, the te- teaching uh, education in the United States or in any country, I guess. So there has been a a remarkable increase, right, of Chinese. Language teaching in American public school systems. Um, I have some data here. For example, a 2002 survey of American college and university courses showed that less than 3% of total enrollment in foreign language was in Chinese, and the number of the enrollment at American elementary and secondary schools was even lower, only 0.3%. That's in 2002. <laughs> so that 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 was a real really an issue, I guess. Um, well, historically, but um, fortunately, there has been some change, especially after the 9/11 attacks, with the deceleration of certain languages, right, as strategic languages important for American national interests. So, but the change has not been very, has not been enough. I I would say, uh, for example, there is another survey showing that um, in 2007-2008, the number of enrollment for Chinese in American K-12 public schools increased from about 20,000 in 2004 to about 60,000 in 2008. It was the largest growth rate among all languages. But... Chinese still ranked very low, lower than the other popular languages, like Spanish, French, German, Latin, and Japanese. And its share was still only (laughs) 0.67%. So in 2008, I would like to highlight that to to show that there has been some uh, improvement, but not enough. Well,
0: thank you. And thank you for highlighting that. Right. As we move to chapter five, this is another really fascinating chapter that we could probably talk about for an yes, hour. Yes. Um, this chapter looks at the increasing return and in circular migration, as and you just uh, mentioned that a little bit of student migrants since the mid nineteen nineties. Um, there's all kinds of fascinating things happening here, including a really interesting use of um, something called Highway Net as a major source. So I won't talk too much about that, but I just want to mention for listeners because this is one of the really interesting things happening in the book is the integration Mm -hmm. of and the use of some really interesting sources, like source materials Mm -hmm. for understanding Mm -hmm. some of these phenomena. Now you show here that migrants often choose to travel between their two communities instead of returning permanently to China. You argue right. that this demonstrates um, some of their reservations about the Chinese dream, but also um, you're, you look very carefully at this phenomenon in the chapter to try to challenge and and upend some assumptions about um, the notion of dual citizenship or dual nationality. Now, the chapter, Mm -hmm. instead of this, the chapter is going to come back to something that you mentioned at the very beginning of our conversation. So it's really nice that we're going to sort of close with this as well, which is the the notion that you're putting forth here for understanding this of selective citizenship. So it's, Mm -hmm. Inspired by the notion of flexible citizenship that listeners may be familiar from other kinds of works, the chapter instead proposes this idea of selective citizenship, among other things, to highlight um, what you call here in the words of the book, migrants' resilience and creativity in claiming their own identities. So as a way of maybe bringing us to our conclusion, could you talk about the this idea of selective citizenship, um, maybe at a little bit more length? For you, what's most important right. about the work that this is doing here?
1: Right. Um, yeah, I, as I mentioned earlier, this term uh, was kind of the the theme of the book that I came up with a few years ago at night at 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 midnight isn't
0: that how things go right in the shower (laughs) or when you can't
1: sleep oh uh, i think in my case it's more dangerous i was walking back from my my office to my apartment at midnight i think and it was very dark and i guess it was in the winter (laughs) i was at the traffic uh, it's a small town here, and then a car parked on the opposite of the street. I was thinking about what might be the theme of the book, or the, the, the journal article, the chapter. Then I came up with this came up with this selective citizenship. I was so immersed in that concept that I forgot the environment. I was just walked <laughs> across the, 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 the street. And then the car was also approaching forward. <laughs> so, so that's midnight, and that's dark, and that's in you know, a small town, and the road—it's it's an interesting experience. But oh, no. that, that's academia pretty...
0: is dangerous. It's dangerous <laughs> to be a professor. <laughs> I
1: really, remember, <laughs> I really remember that particular moment. But but anyway, so I hope this concept—I uh, guess it's—it's it's, uh, in some sense it's not new. Uh, because it's a time-honored strategy of migrants, right? They they choose. They choose where they want to go, even though with a lot of limitations. And they choose what to identify with. Again, based on a lot of uh, historical uh, <laughs> um, traditions or contemporary concerns, mm-hmm. Um uh but um, uh on the other hand, I think this concept may be useful for us to understand first uh for both nation states and the migrants they have this strategy. So nation states they could design immigration policies to choose their desirable migrants. <laughs> uh, particularly in my book, the uh, this highly skilled educated migrants. The, but then for migrants, don't forget they are also very strategic. They are also very um they have their own um, I guess, agency and motivation. Wow. and identity, so they could select their their own strategies of migration, and they could select their own nationality uh, so, uh secondly, I think this concept can help us uh rethink the concepts of like flexible citizenship or dual citizenship particularly uh because for for quite a while, I think in both public and academic settings, people have been talking about this. Uh, advantage of flexible citizenship and also the, the the attraction of dual citizenship. It's wonderful to be dual nationals, but if, as historians, we naturally we will ask the question first: How applicable? How how feasible is that? Right? Different nations have very different national nationality laws, citizenship laws, and in the Chinese case, um, it has a very complicated history of adopting the is policy in the late Qing dynasty uh to to claim all Chinese abroad uh ethnic Chinese as chinese nationals mm-hmm. uh, like the con the context was very complicated because at that time um it was a response to the dutch East India, Indies. Uh, the, the policy, the Dutch policy in the East Indies claiming Chinese, they as Dutch subjects. So in 1909, the first Chinese nationality law then saying uh, that all Chinese abroad should remain Chinese. So it's, it's a response uh, reaction against imperialist um, claims. Uh, but then it changed that later uh, particularly in 1955 in a Cold War context. So the, the Chinese government uh, decided to to f- end this dual nationality law based on its and instead chose the single nationality law. So in China, people cannot be, uh, keep or claim two nationalities. Then how do they select, how do they choose nationality, citizenship? So that's one question I, I pose as a historian to this to this issue, nationality, dual nationality, policy. And also for migrants, uh, they also tend to I, choose their own identities. So it's not just about national membership, national nationality, but their cultural identity. And then they can choose to be either American or, or Canadian, or, or they can remain Chinese. It's their choice. And and many of them made that very clear. So dual nationality, dual citizenship may not be feasible first of all, and nor or, nor desirable for many migrants. So that that's that's that, I think those are the two, two dimensions of the dual nationality um issue I would like to highlight in the in the book. Particularly regard, regarding the desirability of the dual nationality, my chapter highlights the long uh time uh, uh question in Southeast Asia because that's where the majority of Chinese migrants reside and still remain at this moment, even though the percentage of Chinese migrants outside of China in Southeast Asia has uh, decreased. In the past, it was more than 80, 90 percent, but now it it has decreased dramatically. But it's still the majority of Chinese uh, migrants worldwide who stay in Southeast Asia. And for people there, they are still faced with the pernicious question, loyalty question, which has been very, very dangerous and very complicated to them in a Cold War context. And, and for many of them, they may not want to be claimed as both Chinese citizen and the citizen of the local state, the, the native, the local society, because that would make them, again, the target of the nationalist, nativists. Mm-hmm. in 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 the local society uh, concerning their loyalty. So so my chapter try to, tries to highlight this very uh, important and complicated dimensions of the dual nationality and uh, the transnational citizenship question.
0: Great. So Lee Song, thank you so much. There's so much more that we could talk about, right? And uh, we're we're at the end of our time now, um, but there's an epilogue and there's a whole lot more in all of these chapters. <laughs> right. But uh, Given that and, and, you know, given the fact that an, uh, an interview of like this can't possibly be comprehensive and, you know, we'll mm-hmm. assume there's much more in the book. Still, is there anything in particular that we didn't mention um, but that you'd like to mention for listeners?
1: Um, I think we have covered most of the, the major issues and thank you for allowing me to, to, to expand on certain issues. <laughs>
0: oh, Of course. No, thank you. I mean, this is um, a, just a, a demonstration of how vibrant and relevant the work that the book is doing mm-hmm. to animate and to speak to some really, really important conversations right now. So speaking of ongoing conversations, now that right. the book is out and, and congratulations on the book, what's next nice for much. you? Yes. What are you currently working on, and what's inspiring you?
1: Right, um, my next book project is uh, about Chinese the 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 role of Chinese immigration in defining Chinese national identity and constructing. Chinese uh, understandings of race, um, modernization, globalization. So it's at this moment. I know it's a very, a very general theme, but, but uh, I think it will tackle uh, the larger questions than because I think I, I think that may be the, the the pattern for the dissertation. It has to be very focused, right? Mm-hmm. And deeper and deeper. For the, for the second book, um, I I think I will continue some researching some subjects that I already studied in my book, such as the dual nationality law. Uh, but at the same time, I want to expand it to include a, lot, a longer historical span from the mid nineteenth century up to now, and focusing f- on. The nationalists and intellectuals debates <laughs> and discussions about migration, race, and national identity. I have written an uh, a article, uh, which I'm now revising, and hopefully I can send it to a journal soon. Uh, it's a study of other Nationality laws from 1909, as I mentioned earlier, up to the 1980 in the current single nationality law, and along with that, I studied how Chinese intellectuals and the nationalists they, they, uh, um, and they compared the Chinese emigration with other nations of immigrants. So that's another major theme I hope can be part of the book, which I think will be original and important. To compare different nations of immigrants, and my 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 preliminary findings is that it's pretty comparable. China's immigration policies and citizenship laws are quite comparable to other nations such as, uh, um, including Italy and Mexico. And uh, but at the same time, the comparison made led to the Chinese nationalists understanding that China is really different from other imperialist and colonial powers like Italy or war or. or uh, Germany or the United States of course the US is not a nation of emigrants but a nation of immigrants as it claimed itself but the difference is the Chinese nationalists viewed China as different from other colonial powers in treating um in in, in the sense that they are not the Chinese are not uh, exploiting or establishing colonies abroad and um so in that process, I would like to see how they how they conceptualize race and modernization, and how they define Chinese identity, national identity, based on this central role of immigration in Chinese history.
0: Well, that sounds great too. So best of luck with that, and I'll let you go um, <laughs> you. and get to that. But thank you so much for making time. It's really been a pleasure, Li Song, and thanks for giving us a book with such contemporary resonances as well as such historical um, sensitivity. Mm-hmm.
1: Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank, thank you very much. And but in the end, I want, I want, I do want to thank my uh, dissertation committee members for their generous support <laughs> for my for my dissertation. Also, then the book they have been continuously advising me uh, to improve the book. So Anne Watner, Erkani, Barbara, Doug, and uh, particularly Donna Gabacha, including the next book project, Donna has been very, very generous in advising me in in this kind of global and historical comparative frameworks
0: fabulous well thank you for sharing that also and, and thank you so much it's really been a pleasure thank you you've been listening to new books in east asian studies thanks very much for joining us today and we'll see you next time